turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, we will be reading verses 26 through 56 and focusing on Mary's song of praise in verses 46 to 56, but we'll read that portion to gain the context and understanding of how Mary's song occurs as you're Turning there, just a couple words of what preceded, which we're not going to focus on. We've covered that in past years, the first portion of Luke. Luke chapters 1 and 2 present the story of two remarkable births. They present the story of the birth of John, the baptizer, and Jesus Christ. There are many similarities in these accounts. Both mirror each other, and yet details distinguish them as well. Both come to women who shouldn't be able to give birth. Elizabeth, a barren woman, Mary, a virgin. They also both are foretold by the angel Gabriel. So there is the announcement to the, these families, to Zechariah and for Elizabeth and to Mary herself, that these births will occur. We also see that they are marveled at in each of their births, where later in this chapter, when John the baptizer is born, there are those who marvel at what transpires in the muteness of Zechariah being taken away and the name that they chose. And then you see the marveling of Bethlehem itself when Christ Jesus is born. And so there are many things of these, these two births that are meant to mirror each other. In, in that way, they follow the same type of order, and yet there's a distinguishing mark between them as well, where there's a greater weight, obviously, placed to Christ himself. You have the herald in John, but you have the king in Christ. And so the similarities tie them together, which is just biblical, that the herald who comes to prepare the way of the Lord is often in Scripture closely connected to him as well. And yet the difference is that this herald, as John himself would say, I am not the one who comes. I'm unworthy to even, to even tie his sandal, to stoop down and touch his shoe, is what John will say. And you see that here, and you see that in Mary's song as well, her praise for what she receives. The, the title of this, this, these next few sermons are Canticles of Advent. Canticles of Advent. A canticle is comes from the Latin and is a hymn or a psalm or another Christian song of praise. So a canticle is a praise song. And Advent is the arrival of a notable person or thing or event. So a canticle of Advent are hymns of praise concerning the great arrival of the Messiah. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin today by looking at Mary's song and then in the Lord willing in the preceding weeks, following weeks, look at Zechariah's song, the angel song, and Simeon's song before we also continue through the Gospel of Luke as well. That sets the, the stage before our reading. Before we read this text, let's ask for God's blessing on it. Dear Lord, as we turn to history, what we have here is a historical account, a historical narrative, but of what truly took place, that is our personal history of the history of salvation itself. We pray that you would grant to our very finite and lowly minds understanding and a greater, a greater appreciation for you and what you've done in redemption, that we might worship your name through this message. We pray that it would be true and according to your word, that if anything be said that would not be true, that it would fall to the ground, that it would not it would not take flight. It would not be heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And was, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And this is our text this morning. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thus ends the reading of God's word. A scene like this has never occurred before. In fact, the conversation of these two pregnant women is vastly different from any other conversation pregnant women might have as they gather together. How do you respond to such events? We've become so used to them that we might miss what's going on here. To place yourself in Mary's shoes, and Elizabeth's shoes, but especially Mary's here as she is visited by this angel and overwhelmed by Gabriel's words to her, a nobody. She's even confused at the greeting of this angel, O oh, favored one, this blessed one. Well, who, who are you talking to, Gabriel? You would, you would think he got the wrong person. Why, why come to me would be Mary's thought. 
And then she goes and visits Elizabeth, her relative, and Elizabeth gives this profound praise to what the Lord is working through her. And in response to these great affirmations of what the Lord is doing, Mary breaks out in song and praises the Lord. And what we have called, and it's based on the Latin of the first word of her song, the Magnificat. Mary's response is one to magnify the Lord in everything that she's seen, where she's seen this, this baby, John himself, leap in the womb of his mother as the herald in womb is already performing his duty. The Savior's come. And to think, as Mary would, that this child, the Lord himself, Jesus, Savior, of all the people, the Messiah is in my womb. And it's been so affirmed by a divine messenger. It's been affirmed by the words of the woman who shouldn't have known it and did. Feeling in herself her, her child's own leaping. Because the Savior has come. And Mary then, in her sense, does her own bit of leaping of praise in her song. Her song that is saturated with scripture. It's full of it. Her song bears resemblance to 1 Samuel 2 and Hannah's song where she praises the Lord for her own her own barrenness taken away, where she has Samuel the prophet and she praises the Lord in her song. Well, Mary's song is very similar to that. There are echoes of it. Mary is seemingly quoting many psalms here. Psalms like 103 is being influenced by Psalm 107, which we sang earlier. There are portions of Isaiah that seem to heavily flavor her words. Her response is a song to magnify the Lord, to sing his praises. Now, we will look at each of these Advent songs, these Advent hymns. Now, some critics say that these songs aren't original or that these songs don't provide any new information, that they're, they, they must have been a later edition, not only because they're, they're, the Greek is, is different, they'll say, and that's, that's been disproven, but they'll, they'll say it's, it's different and that the song doesn't contribute, so why was it added? Now, sometimes, I, I heard one pastor say this, it, it takes a commentator sometimes to mess up the, the intent of the, the passage, and that's, that's so true. We, we have our scholars who sometimes, in their own pride, overanalyze things and think they've stumbled on something that's not the case. Why would I say that? Because a song is used in a narrative to highlight something. That's the reason a song is used. It may not necessarily convey new information to the narrative, but what it does is it takes everything that the narrative has presented and it brings it to this, this fountainhead, this eruption of praise, this, this center of the text. It almost concludes on the song of praise itself. And that's the way songs are used even in our own context. You can think of uh, musicals, you can think of movies that use songs, Disney movies do this, where, where in the song, there's the narrative, it comes, and then the song comes, and the song is, is really the, the important point. The song is presenting and condensing everything and putting it so, so clearly. And by the fact that it's a song, it invites the readers to sing along. It invites the readers to pause. That's what a song does as well. The narrative slows, and we digest everything that's just happened, seeing how a saint prays the Lord through it. This is nothing new in Scripture. You can think of Exodus 15, when the people have seen the Lord's deliverance, casting the army of Pharaoh into the sea, and there's the song of Moses, there's a song of praise, and the narrative stops. 
This happens all throughout God's Word. This happens in the Psalms. This happens in David's life where key moments are punctuated and, and added with exclamation by the songs that are sung. That's what these songs of Advent do. They bring us to the point of praise for what the Lord is doing, and that's exactly what Mary's song does. It furthers that praise. Every year around Christmas, and not just every year, it's every week. Every week we are bought, brought to the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ. In the season of Christmas, it's one that we tend to set aside to focus more specifically on the narratives of the birth itself. And it's in these seasons we are blessed to be reminded of this great truth and yet we always, every year, and at any time you read the narrative of Christ, we are, we are confronted with a danger, and the danger is to miss it. The danger is to miss what's going on here because we're so used to it. And also because the, the trappings of the season might actually interfere with what's going on here because the songs that we know so well or the scenes that we become used to are what our mind naturally gravitates towards and we don't actually see the, the true biblical, the true biblical vitality and fruitfulness that, fruitfulness that is being presented here. That's what Mary's song helps to correct as she gives her own personal praise and corporate praise. You see, Gabriel's and Elizabeth's words to Mary about her blessed role in, in bearing God's son causes her to praise the Lord. And her praise can be summed up in this way. Jesus' coming fulfills covenant promises by mercifully exalting lowly God-fearers while tearing down the proud opposition. That's a pretty thick statement, but that's because Mary's song is, is going everywhere. It's taking in a whole lot. It's taking in covenant fulfillment, as you see in the last verse of her song, when she mentions Abraham and the promises of the Lord. She's seeing redemptive themes in Exodus and the way that the Lord is, is bringing about their own freedom from exile, as it were, though they're in the land. She also praises the Lord for the God-fearers that he raises up while he tears down the proud opposition. This is all what's going on in her song. Her song can be broken down into two sections. Verses 46 to 49 expresses Mary's personal praise. We could call it magnifying the Lord for exalting a lowly God-fearer. Magnifying the Lord for exalting a lowly God, fear her, because she centers on herself, on what the Lord has done to her personally, and she praises the Lord for that. And then in the second portion of the song, she magnifies the Lord for what he's doing corporately to all people, to all the God-fearers. So she praises her, his name in that. And we'll look at her personal praise. It begins in verse 46. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. How does one magnify the Lord? What's going on there? I, I think we could very quickly think, say it's praise. She's praising the Lord. And that's true, but that word that she used, magnifies, helps enlarge our understanding it helps see how she's desiring to praise the Lord. The Greek word means enlarge, boast, grow. She's seeking to enlarge the name of the Lord. She's seeking to grow the name of the Lord by bringing to him her own thanksgiving, her own wonder at what the Lord is doing. This magnifies the name of the Lord. 
This praises it. It's, it's enlarging everything that is understood about what the Lord has done. And she stands at a point in history where she's able to do this in a way no one else has ever done. She's able to enlarge and praise the name of the Lord in a way that has never happened before. Because the Savior's in her very womb. And so she sings this song to praise, to boast in Him. And her, her, her song is a boast. It is filled with what the Lord's doing for the God-fearers, what the Lord is doing for His people, and how He's he's throwing over all the proud. He's taking them down. He's pulling down princes from their thrones. He's taking their power and emptying it. It's a boast. It's a boast in her child. Amazing. Think, mothers. It is a blessing. You love to think of the child in your womb and wonder, who is this? What will they be like? All these things. And, and this mother is praising God for she sees what will be done. She responds in faith and she's been blessed. She's been blessed to bear him. Certainly not because she was in some way so special, so, so worthy. And that's not to say she wasn't a righteous woman. She clearly was. But it wasn't that the text says that she was so far above everyone else that the Lord came to her. Mary's own response is to say, why me? A humble God-fearer, and so she praises the Lord personally for what he's doing for one woman, one humble God-fearer in what he's done for her, which is, in, in, as, you, as you expand that, is really a praise for what he's doing for all the God-fearers. She gets to that in her song, using herself as an example. This is how God operates. Look what he's doing for me, a nobody. And so she enlarges the name of the Lord. You see, she shows us here what is involved in heartfelt worship. She says it's her soul that magnifies the Lord. Her soul here is a stand-in for all of who she is, everything she is. Her, her, her whole being praises the Lord and magnifies Him. It's heartfelt worship. Worship involves your whole heart, mind, and strength, and that's what she does using Scripture to invoke the name of the Lord and praise His name, being filled with understanding of Scripture and God's own plan and how God will redeem. That's all in her song. Notice what she says of God. Notice how she, what she attaches to God's name, God my Savior. See, Mary sees the truth. She is praising God especially for His work of deliverance his work of salvation, and knowing that it is her very salvation. Again, just place yourself in her shoes. She's saying this about the child in her womb, her Savior. She, he, the one in her womb is her Savior because she says God is her Savior. Well, how is God her Savior? Why would she call him that? Because he's put this child in her womb. And so she sees the connection, her deliverance, her salvation from the Lord in heaven is through his son in her. Amazing. Worshiping God for salvation, knowing that she needs this deliverance as well, showing she understands that this is in response to promises made to Abraham. The Abraham, the, the, the father of the nation, the one who received the promises of the covenant of grace, and what's happening to her is in direct response to the promises given to him. The wonder of the way God works, 
Verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant from now on. All generations will call me blessed. And you see what Moses, not, not Moses, Mary, you see what Mary is doing here. She sees her humble estate. She sees that she is this servant, this lowly one, and then sees that all will call her blessed. Now this is far more, it contains certainly a personal element of, of who am I to be exalted by bearing him? Who am I to be blessed by being chosen to be the womb to nurture the Savior? And that's certainly there, but it's more than just, oh, goody. Now my name's remembered. Now my name will endure. It's not so much that. And, and why can we say that? Because she's directing all her attention to the Lord and what he's doing. It's not just like, I'm now elevated above all. It's, look what he's done. This humble woman to me. All generations will call me blessed because the Lord God, the Son of God, I should say, is in my very womb. It has more to do with how God operates, you see. How God will magnify the lowly. How God will take one such as herself, and he's doing this for all his people, all those rightly called God-fearers, the lowly who need redeeming the humble who need raising up and saving those who need delivering. And so she sees her lowly estate and sees what God is doing, and she sees the lowly estate of all God's people and what God is doing. The mighty works that God's doing for Mary can't just be her name recognition, but her very redemption, and so she praises the Lord. It's also interesting that throughout the entirety of her psalm here, her song, Look at how Mary describes it. She speaks of the things that the Lord has already done. She speaks of it as if it's happened already, and of course we know it has not. But she's doing this because the certainty of what the Lord will do, because she trusts the word of the Lord as delivered through the angel. She trusts in the promises that God gave to Abraham and sees their fulfillment and knows it's so certain that she speaks of it as already happening. And that's a correct way to speak of it. It's, it's happened, it's been done when the child's growing in her because it's so certain that she sees it. It's so, it's so true. It will happen. It's as if it's already been done for her, and so she praises the Lord. You see the act of faith there? We can uh, exemplify faith, and we ought to exemplify our faith when we praise God for what he's done, what he's accomplished. That's good. So that's praising God for after the fact. It's also a step above maturity and, and in good faith to praise the Lord in the midst of it, to, to pray to him and ask him for these things. You're going through this, and so you pray that the Lord will do. That, that's even more faith. The one, you've already seen the Lord accomplish it. The other, you're praying for it in the midst of it. But what she's doing, she's thanking and praising the Lord as if it's happened when it has not. And that's the highest level of our faithful prayers. And so trusting in him that we're not doubting, we are assured of what he's doing when it hasn't happened. Why? Because we trust his word. The word that he's delivered, the revelation, that's, that's direct trust in God and his sovereignty that does not doubt that this will occur. And so she praises the Lord as if it's been done. Mary is highly favored. Now, of course, this isn't the Roman Catholic error to really deify Mary. 
to make her some mediatrix, to make her some saint that all Christians can pray to, to give her some kind of divine attributes that she can hear all these prayers and bring them to the Son. That's not it at all. Even by Mary's own admission, what you see here is not that. You don't see the Roman Catholic version of Mary. You see the Mary, a righteous woman who's blessed by the Lord, who's designed to bear the Lord himself, or designated, I should say, to bear the Lord himself. This is the Mary you see. By her own admission, she's one of the humble and lowly who needs the deliverance of the Lord, who needs the redemption of the Lord. But it's been already done for her. We can see this later in the Gospel in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 to 28. A woman cries out to Jesus from the crowd. And this woman says, Blessed is the womb that carried you and the breast from which you nursed. It's interesting that you see here already something of a fulfillment. Her name's being blessed by the very fact that she bore Christ. She is being praised, but you see how God, how, how God and Christ responds. He says this, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's his response to that woman. Who are the blessed? And you see here, it's not that Mary is only and solely blessed because she was chosen and selected for this great opportunity. She wouldn't just be blessed in that. She's blessed if she does exactly what Christ says, those who hear the word of God and keep it, and you know that's exactly what she's doing. She's heard the word of the Lord and she trusts it. She's keeping it. She's faithfully responding to it. And this clarifies the blessing of God's people. This clarifies Mary's own role. She heard and she believed and she trusts and she obeys. And so is one of the lowly to be exalted, just as she, like any one of us, will be when we hear the word of the Lord and respond in faith and obedience and trust, by Mary's own admission, it's all about God. That's her assessment. You read this, this song. You hear this song sung. And who's the center? And it isn't Mary. Mary does talk about herself, but it's always in service for the grandeur of God, specifically in what? To raise up the humble. Such a strong biblical theme. To exodus the humble. To raise them up, the poor and the lowly. There's so much in that term. So much beyond just not having wealth. Spiritual humility. Yes, physical poorness and depravity. The lowly. Mary is one of these lowly, and what we see in her psalm will characterize the gospel of Luke itself and what Jesus does. He does exactly what this song is praising him for. He comes to the lowly and raises them up. He heals the sick. He removes demons from these oppressed, from the demonized. He reaches out and restores the discredited sinners, the pariahs of the society, he preaches good news to the poor, to those who need it, to the humble and lowly who beat their chest and say, Lord, I am not worthy. He comes to such as them. What God has done for Mary is an expression of God's mercy on the people. And that's what we see in verses 50 to 56, where Mary magnifies the Lord for exalting lowly God-fearers. Here she turns to her, her corporate praise. She removes her attention now from what the Lord has done personally to what he's doing for all his people. 
This is Mary's corporate praise. The prominent themes of this song are, are seen in the strong arm of God. That's exodus. That's deliverance in what he's doing to bring them out of their enslavement and their, their poor state. You see the reversal of fortunes in the raising up of those poor, but also the bringing down of the proud. You see filling the humble and emptying those pride. There's provision and sustenance. You see covenant fulfillment. You see Mary sees a radical revolution. From the child caused by the child in her very womb. She sees, and I think this is how we best understand everything she's doing, she sees Exodus in the one in her womb. Think back, we went through Exodus. Exodus was a deliverance of a poor people, a lowly people, an enslaved people that we saw also corresponded to all God's people, enslaved in Egypt, which was the literal land of Egypt, but signified and meant so much more of their spiritual enslavement. These were the lowly people. These were those who needed to be pulled out and an exodus out of that. And it was an exodus that wasn't just a spiritual exodus. They didn't remain in the land. It changed their whole fortunes. It was a radical revolution, a radical change that brought them to a promised land that changed their estate from slaves to landowners, from those that had nothing to those who had plundered the Egyptians and had riches, to those who were God's people and communed with him. This is what Mary sees. The strong arm of the Lord is always used in Scripture referring to that imagery, especially the Exodus. This mighty arm to redeem, that's what Mary sees. That's this prominent theme, covenant fulfillment. And verse 50 gives us a good example of who she sees as these lowly. A good definition of the lowly that the Lord raises up. It says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy, everything she's saying, is for those who fear him. It is the God-fearers who she's talking about. And yet we do well to not divorce the imagery of the lowly with the God-fearers. God's people in their deliverance has always been cast and understood as the lowly. We already talked about the Exodus. Think of the second exile. They were dispersed. They were taken away from the land. They were enslaved in other lands. Certainly lowly and prisoners and poor. And the Exodus of the second Exodus brings them back from exile. The lowly. And now look at the people in the station of Israel now. They're in the land, but they're under the boot of Rome. They don't have autonomy. They don't have their own nation. In fact, there's so much political turmoil going on. You have the zealots that want to overthrow them but can't. You have God-fearers who just want deliverance. These are the lowly. They're God's people. You can also call the church the same, the church militant. We're the lowly. We're the God-fearers. We are the poor not poor just spiritually only. It's the poor in their own standing in society. The oppressed, the downtrodden, those who didn't have much. You see, to fall on one side or the other sort of pulls the beauty of what the poor and lowly are. If you over-spiritualize it, then the poor are only the oppressed that don't have their wealth or a standing in society that makes it all earthbound. And it makes what the Lord has done rather small. But that's not fully. It's part of it. It's those who are lowly, yes. The Lord raises them up, but only if they're the the God-fearers. And so often God has his people cast in that way. They, They, their spiritual reality mimics their 
their physical reality. They don't have. And so if you only cast it in the physical, well, you've lost that beauty. If you only cast it spiritually, you've lost the grandeur of what Christ has come to do. Jesus did not just come to save your soul. He came to save the world. And Mary sees a radical revolution. God's word shows that, that Christ's coming does not just affect the standing of your soul. It affects everything creation because he's coming to redeem all is being changed fiery upheaval the mighty are torn down those princes and kings are tossed from their thrones the haughty are humbled the rich are bankrupt the lowly exalted they're fed Christ's ministry would show this. You see, so many of his miracles were those that were mere foretastes of the reversal of their state where he feeds the hungry with food that just keeps going on. Where he heals the infirmities of the people. Why? Well, miracles prove his identity. They show who he is. They show his power. But there's even more going on than just that. There's a sliver of redemption even of their bodies. He raises up the prostitutes, the sinners who, who were the lowest of society, the tax collectors, these who, upon redemption, upon trusting in him, their whole position changes, and now they're heirs of the kingdom of God itself, a kingdom that is not just spiritual, a kingdom that will be fully, in all senses, spiritual and physical. Now, all that, all that hasn't come yet, some of it is to be awaited. We've, and we could say it this way, we've seen perhaps that greater outpouring of a spiritual renewal right now, but that's not to downplay the, the redemption of the kingdom itself in all things. Even the creation that awaits with groaning and eager longing for its own redemption, for its own remaking. All of this is a result of that little child Redemption in true exodus was of the entire station of the people, and this is what they needed. This is what Christ brings about. Mary's words show just how much Christ's coming was an atomic bomb. That's what it was. You can think you've all seen the imagery of the bomb that goes off. There's, at first, there's an, there's an explosion, but it seems small. And then all of a sudden it expands. It's huge. The whole region is affected. There's a shockwave that just goes before and wipes everything out. And there's this mushroom cloud of power. And all that's done. And all that it's changed. That's what Christ's coming is. Total reversal. Thousands of years of human history. A total fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds of years of covenant promises from God to his people, he's there in her very womb. It's interesting, and I would liken the church to Mary here. Mary sings an audacious song. I just imagine you think of Caesar Augustus sitting on his throne. You think of the emperor of the world. You think of Rome. What would they think of this backwater place and this peasant of a woman who sings of the power of her son to come? 
They would see a nobody in a corner of the world that meant nothing in their eyes, but who would, in her words, literally bring about the change of everything, a spiritual standing, the redemption of all things in Exodus, and that would tear down their own might, that would usurp their own thrones. And they would laugh and scoff, but that's the church in that sense where we do the same. Our message, our songs are audacious. For us lowly to sing what we do of the downfall of the unjust and the bringing down of the proud and the raising up of our meager selves, it would be laughed at, and it is. But Mary's song proves true, as does the song of the church. This is the message of Christmas. This is the message of Christ's coming. Redemption in all its respects. And why is this important for us to know? It's important for our worship. You see quite clearly how this informs our worship, how this adds depth and joy and strength to how we worship the Lord and understanding what he's doing and and joining our voices with Mary's and praising the Lord for what he's done with our own souls to magnify, that's our intent, and magnify the Lord's name. You see how knowing Mary's song informs our worship. You see how it informs our understanding of redemption. We see those that God would raise up, and it's the lowly, the humble, or as verse 50 so puts it so clearly, the God-fearers. They're the ones raised up. It's important for us to know that, to know the identity of redemption, to know how God operates. It's important for us for our own security. It's important for us for our own hope and our own strength. That when we see what is not right in the world, we would see Mary's song and know that Christ has already come and that we would speak in the faith that she herself spoke in as it's happened already. The deliverance of the world when we understand what we mean and say it's happened already, yes, we know there's a fulfillment, but it's so certain we know it's happening. We may as well already speak that it's been done. That doesn't confuse. That is a forward-looking faith. To await with longing a sure conviction, to await with hope that which will happen. Verse 55 ends her song, seeing the covenant and its fulfillment in the offspring of Abraham forever. In a woman, Mary, who is the reversal of Eve herself, who is the woman who bears now the seed, the seed of the woman, of course, Mary would break out in song. She's the first to connect the dots. She's the first to sing a song of welcome to the Savior and not just a song of anticipation. Yes, we magnify the Lord and join our voices with hers. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in awe of you. We are in awe at what you work through your humble God-fearers of what you've done through Mary as a representative of all of your lowly people. And we see the power and strength that you bring about of an explosion of power. That's what the kingdom is as it's brought forth. That's what Christ's coming is. A explosion, an atomic bomb that rocked the world and changes all. We are in the long list of those saints who trust in the Savior. 
We pray that you would enhance our own worship, that you help us to understand redemption through it, and that you would give to us hope, strength, and security in the message that we believe and trust. In Jesus' name, amen.